0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, would you open your Bibles tonight? There's three places I'll get you ready to turn to. Matthew chapter 2, Jeremiah chapter 10, i got that question today, and uh, John chapter 10. Those three sections of scripture we're going to be looking at tonight, Matthew, Jeremiah, and John. Let's pray for the study tonight. You can, you can keep turning. You can keep your eyes open while we pray. It's, it's, it's allowed. <laughs> Father, we do thank you for the glory of God that we've experienced by coming into contact with you, the living God. You're alive. You have shown yourself to us by changing our lives and making all things new. And we pray, Father, that as we together consider these scriptures along with some traditions that we have celebrated at Christmas, we would begin to make sense of the right approach to this season, the season that we are definitely in and how to celebrate it and how to make the most of the celebration that even the world is a part of. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin with some facts about Santa Claus that you may not have known. Number one, no known species of reindeer can fly, but there are 300,000 species of living organisms yet to be classified. And while most of these are insects and germs, this does not completely rule out flying reindeer. (laughs) Number two, there are 2 billion children in the world eight uh, persons under 18. But since Santa doesn't appear to handle Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, or Buddhist children, that reduces the workload by 85%, leaving 378 million, according to the Population Reference Bureau. At an average census rate, that is 91.8 million homes, one presumes there is at least one good child per house. (laughs) Number three, Santa has 31 hours of Christmas to work with. Thanks to the different time zones and the rotation of the earth, assuming he travels east to west, which seems logical, this works out to 822.6 visits per second. This is to say that for each Christian household with good children, Santa has one one one-thousandth of a second to park, hop out of the sleigh, jump down the chimney, fill the stocking, distribute the remaining presents under the tree, eat whatever snacks have been left, get back up the chimney, get back into the sleigh, and move on to the next house. Assuming that each one of these 91.8 million stops are evenly distributed around the earth, which, of course, we know to be false, but for the purpose of our calculations, we will accept... We are now talking about 0.78 miles per household, a total trip of 75.5 million miles, not counting stops to do what most of us do at least once every 31 hours, plus feeding, etc. That means that Santa's sleigh is moving at 650 miles per second, 3,000 times the speed of sound. For purposes of comparison, the fastest man-made vehicle on earth the Ulysses space probe moves at a pokey 27.4 miles per second. A conventional reindeer can run at tops 25 to 30 miles per hour. Number four. <laughs> Somebody really thought this through. The payload on the sleigh adds another interesting element. Assuming that each child gets nothing more than a medium-sized Lego set, that's two pounds, the sleigh is carrying 321,300 tons not counting Santa, who invariably is described as overweight. <laughs> On land, conventional reindeer can pull no more than 300 pounds. Even granting the flying reindeer, that, even granting that flying reindeer could pull 10 times the normal amount, we cannot do the job with 8 or even 9. We need 214,200 reindeer. Well, this increases the payload, not even counting the weight of the sleigh, to 353,430 tons. Again, for the sake of comparison, this is four times the weight of the HMS Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> Number five, and finally, I promised: 353,000 tons traveling at 650 miles per hour, or per second, uh, creates an enormous air resistance. This will heat the reindeer up in the same fashion that spacecrafts re-entering the Earth's atmosphere would have. The lead pair will absorb 14.3 quintillion joules of energy per second each. In short, short, they will burst into flames almost instantaneously, (laughs) exposing the reindeer behind them and creating a deafening sonic boom in their wake. The entire reindeer team will be vaporized within 4.26 thousandth of a second. Santa, meanwhile, will be subject to centrifugal forces of 17,500.06 times greater than gravity. A 250-pound Santa would be pinned to the back of the sleigh by a 4,315,015-pound force. In conclusion... If Santa ever did really deliver presents on Christmas Eve, he's now dead. (laughs) Wow. That was hard to even read. This illustrates a problem that we have this time every year. And the problem is all of the mythical stuff that has been added to Christmas, all of the commercialization. All of the popularization that has been added to this holiday that we call Christmas. And so, what a lot of people would say, if there's so much fiction, and we know that the fat man in the red suit is fiction, the fact that a fat man in a red suit could deliver presents to every kid on earth is fiction, flying reindeer is fiction, a snowman that talks is fiction. So people would say, well, maybe that whole baby part thing in the manger is also fiction. Now, a lot of people have thought that, but now people are starting to say that. Let me show you a picture that you may have heard of on the news. This is uh, right outside the Lincoln Tunnel in New Jersey. As you go into Manhattan, the American Atheist Society put this up, and it says, basically, you know it's a myth. And notice the manger scene with Jesus, Mary, Joseph, And the three wise men. You know it's a myth. So it says, this season, celebrate reason. They spent $20,000 on that sign. Um, Interesting that they didn't pick July to put stuff up like that. They targeted Christmas. And they targeted Christians who celebrate Christmas. Why did they do that? Well, I can't speak for them, but I did a little research. One interesting source who talked to them said, well, atheists feel lonely during this season of the year. It's Christmas. They don't believe in God. So here we are having this grand celebration, and they're feeling alienated, isolated, and lonely. Well, I have a solution for them, one they probably wouldn't like, but that's one of the motivations, perhaps, for putting out this advertisement. But it brings up the issue. Since Christmas is so commercialized, And since, as we'll discover, we don't really know the exact date of Jesus' birth. And since a lot of Christian tradition is just that, tradition, even passed on from pagan sources, is it even okay to celebrate Christmas? Is it okay to have decorations? Is it okay to put up lights? Is it okay from a Christian biblical perspective to have a Christmas tree? Now, you should know something about Our Puritan forefathers, some of whom I really have enjoyed over the years reading, but I depart with them on this point. Our Puritan forefathers were against the celebration of Christmas. They spoke hard against it. They wrote about it. Our Puritan forefathers said that celebrating Christmas was tantamount to selling out to the world because the world has so commercialized and popularized it. Uh, in fact, um, they didn't like the fact that it distracted people from the Lord's Day. That was their main beef. It distracted people from the Lord's Day. Now, I, I just have to say, honestly, that's one point of their argument I tend to side with them on. I mean, this year Christmas is on Saturday. Next year it's going to be on Sunday. You know how every seven years it's on Sunday? You know what we discover? We discover. It's really, really hard to convince people on Christmas Day, even though it's a Sunday, to get out of their house and come to church on Sunday. I've heard of churches even closing their doors on Christmas if it falls on a Sunday. They don't have worship. So the Puritans saw that trend and were against it. In fact, in the 17th century, the Puritan forefathers, who a lot of them had control of the legal aspects of our country issued a law in certain parts of our country forbidding the celebration of christmas if you had a store it was mandated that the marketplace be kept open anyone closing their shop to celebrate christmas could be prosecuted under the law it was illegal to make plum pudding on december 25th according to them So they got really hardcore about this whole thing of no celebrating Christmas. It is true that a lot of the traditions of Christmas go way, way back. And I'll uncover a couple of them tonight. As far as pagan roots are concerned. Now every year we get letters, and this year is not without exception. Every time we put up a tree and we have a tree in the foyer... And we didn't stop with a tree. We put up, like, lots of them. Like we made, like, a little forest up here. We get emails or letters saying, you know, how could you as a church put up a Christmas tree? Don't you know it's a pagan celebration? Uh, putting up a tree has pagan roots and pagan origins. And how could you do that? And so a lot of people get really, let's call it, Santa claustrophobic about Christmas. Bah humbug is their mantra this time of the year. I want to make a simple suggestion as I take you through this quick study tonight. I suggest, rather than react, that we redeem. Rather than just saying, bah no. How about saying, how could we use this season of the year to center on Christ and even get worldly neighbors who wouldn't think about God at any other time to consider Christ during this time of the year? Now, I've had you turn to Matthew 2 to begin with. Matthew 2 jumps right in. You know, you can't, uh, you can't get out of a Christmas season without reading Matthew 2 at least once. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, Magoi is the word, Magoi, came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, a better term, agitated, torqued, really mad. If you know a little bit about Herod the Great, you know he had a fine case of paranoia. And it flares up right around this time because he didn't want any competition. King of the Jews, excuse me, he would say, that's my job. I'm in charge of these parts. Judea, Jerusalem, the kingdom of the Jews, I am the king of the Jews. So he was alerted by this. And that, of course, alerts everybody else in the story. You know, if Herod's not happy, ain't nobody happy. When he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes, verse 4, of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Okay, so here's the scene. We have an entourage. An entourage. It wasn't three wise men. I'll tell you how, how that developed. It developed because of a song. We, we think there's three because somebody wrote a song, We Three Kings of Orient Are, Bearing Gifts We Traverse So Far. So people just assume there were three because three gifts are presented. They just assume... Each gift must belong to a specific Magi king. They weren't kings, by the way. They were Magoi. They were astrologers. They were magicians. The word magic comes from Magoi. They probably in the Persian court had heard of the prophecies of the coming Messiah through one who made a strong impact in his day, a young man by the name of Daniel, who then grew up in Babylon and impacted that court of Magoi, which he was a part of, though true to the living God at the time. Well, these, these Magoi travel 500 miles, starting in Persia, moving westward, southward and westward, toward Jerusalem. And here's what's interesting. They come to celebrate a birthday, the birth of Jesus Christ. They come to celebrate a birthday. What they discover is there's people in Jerusalem who are bah humbug. They don't want to celebrate the birth. And largely it's because of their traditions. They don't want to celebrate the birth of Christ. Herod the Great had a tradition of protectionism. He wanted to protect his kingdom at all costs. Anybody who would compete with that, he would kill them. Then there was the tradition of the scribes and Pharisees who worked for Herod the Great. They had the worst tradition of all. Their tradition was read the Bible, study the Bible, know the Bible, but never practice or live out the Bible. Really, that was their tradition. I mean, I've always been amazed that Jerusalem is four to five miles in easy walk. I bicycled there years ago and back several times. It's only four to five miles away from Jerusalem, Bethlehem is. If they heard of these guys coming 500 miles and Bethlehem's just a few miles away, you'd think they'd at least hop on their little horse and check it out. But they didn't do that. They quoted the scripture immediately, but didn't even seek to verify it. So tonight, this is what I want to do. I want to look back. I want to look to the present, and I want to look to the future. I want to look back and talk about some of the traditions that go far back and where they stem from. Then I want to look to the present for a solution. What do we do with that? And then finally, I want to issue a challenge to become innovative in creating perhaps some even new traditions. First of all, let's begin with the whole thing of tradition. This is the dilemma. Traditions can be good. Traditions can be bad. It all depends on who makes the tradition and why. Some traditions are unfounded in scripture and people just do things because they do things. And it's funny when you talk to people, why do you do that? We've always done it that way. That's their rationale from start to finish. We've always done it that way. Okay, that's never really set well with me. However, the Bible does speak about certain traditions that Paul the Apostle writes to Timothy and says, Keep the traditions that I have delivered to you. They're not all bad. Here's the tradition of most of Judaism 2,000 years ago. They were looking for a political messiah. A political messiah. They weren't looking for somebody to save them from sin. They wanted somebody to save them from Rome. They wanted political freedom. And to have the, 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 the bands of slavery removed. They were not looking for the Jesus as the redeemer of sin. Now, tradition. Though it can be bad, is also the thing for good that kept the Jews together. It was the glue, you might say, that kept Jews together for 2,000 years. They were dispersed out of their land called the Diaspora or the dispersion. And they ended up all over the world in different pockets of Judaism, but it was their traditions that kept them tethered and kept them together and helped them survive. I think it's no... No better c- captured than in the movie *Fiddler on the Roof*, when Tevya, toward the beginning of the movie, sings that opening number *Tradition*. And he points to the fact that his people were bound together by traditions they received from their forefathers. Well, let's begin with an obvious tradition because we are celebrating it, December 25th. Where did that date come from? Well, first of all, let's let, let's ask this question. Was Jesus Christ born on December 25th? How many say no? Okay, how many say yes? Okay, and it's hard because you don't want to be the, well, what if I'm wrong? I'm not going to raise my hand. Okay. So those that said no, um, I just have to say, I think I think you're all wrong. Because the real answer is nobody knows. Nobody knows. Could have been born on December 25th. He probably wasn't because typically, typically shepherds don't keep flock over their sheep by night in December, even over in the Middle East, unless it's like a La Nina year and the weather is extremely favorable, they probably wouldn't be doing that. Some believe he, he was, but the oldest traditions, the oldest traditions, the earliest date we can find, don't say he was born December 25th. The first date we can find in history comes from a guy named Clement of Alexandria, That's down in Egypt, and he was one of the early church fathers who set the date of the birth of Christ at May 20th. That's the earliest earliest historical date we have, May 20th. Now, doesn't that, like, blow your whole Christmas away? (laughs) Can you imagine putting up a tree in May and giving gifts in May? But it's the earliest date we have in history. Now, others challenge that and fix the date. In April the 18th, some April the 19th, And there's another date floating around, March the 28th. Those are the earliest dates that we have. The date of December 25th was unknown to the early church. And it was unknown in Christendom until about the 3rd century when a pastor, a bishop in Rome named Hippolytus calculated the date December 25th. But let me tell you how he arrived at that date. He said he knew the exact date of the conception of Mary, when Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary. Now, how he figured that out, nobody knows. But he set the date at March 25th. That was the day she was miraculously conceived, born, or or the, the baby inside of her womb. And so he counted exactly nine months and came up with the December 25th. However, what makes that suspect, in a lot of ways, but what makes it suspect is the date December 25th corresponded with another ancient holiday being practiced in Rome that went all the way back to Babylon. You know how the world works, right? Especially in those days, there's a kingdom that made an impact on earth and that kingdom was taken over by another kingdom, by another kingdom, by another kingdom. But what happened when kingdoms took over other nations is certain beliefs, values, and traditions got passed down. So Babylon, a world governing empire, was taken over by Medo-Persia and then by Greece and then eventually Rome ruled the world. But some of the earliest practices and beliefs and traditions were passed down from Babylon through Medo-Persia into Greece and into Rome. Okay. So December 25th. What happened in history? According to tradition, have you ever heard of a guy named Nimrod? Nimrod, does that ring a bell? Genesis, Nimrod, chapter 10. Nimrod, according to Babylonian tradition, and Nimrod founded a town called, the Bible says, Babel, Babel. According to Babylonian tradition, Nimrod married a beautiful woman named Semiramis. It was a wonderful marriage, according to legend. Nimrod died, probably on a hunt. Then it was discovered that Simiramis was pregnant. However, here was the problem. Simiramis was pregnant a long time after her husband died. That's a problem. So what she said was, is that she was pregnant, but it wasn't by any human being. That she encountered a flash of light from heaven and she was miraculously impregnated. The son that was born was named T-A-M-M-U-Z, Tammuz. Tammuz. He was uh, born December 25th. She, Semiramis, called her son Tammuz the reincarnation of Nimrod. And there are ziggurats, these clay towers all around uh, Persia, Iran, Iraq, that are worshiping the sun god, Nimrod, and Tammuz, his son. Semiramis had an interesting title by the Babylonians. They called her the Queen of Heaven. And they worshiped Tammuz, Semiramis, and Nimrod as sort of this this triune deity, this father, mother, and son. Uh, In the spring of the year, the impregnation of Semiramis was celebrated. It was called Ishtar. There's still a gate in Babylon called the Ishtar Gate. Uh, Ishtar celebrated the fact that she was miraculously impregnated, and um, we know Ishtar as Easter and they would make colored eggs to celebrate fertility, and they gave little bunnies away to each other. We know what bunnies do, so it was a symbol of fertility, and they celebrated with eggs. Um, as I mentioned, Tammuz's birth was celebrated December 25th because the solstice had passed, the shortest day of the year, around December 21st. The days were starting to get longer, and so people were worshiping the sun, and Tammuz and Nimrod were at the center of that. You know how they celebrated the birth of Tammuz, by what is called a Yule log. Ever heard of Yule tide or the Yule log, Y-U-L-E? That's a Babylonian name. It means baby or infant. So what they would do, the Babylonians, on December 24th is put a Yule log into the fire and burn it up. You go to bed and wake up the next day and people would see in their living room a fir tree. It symbolized death and resurrection of Tammuz, uh, or actually of Nimrod, and then the reincarnation of Nimrod into his son Tammuz. Okay, with that background, turn to Jeremiah chapter 10, because I've had questions on this even today. Jeremiah chapter 10, just a few verses. Now I'm baiting you a little bit, but Jeremiah chapter 10, because I, I get this pointed out. Look, look, Look at the Christmas tree, and this is Jeremiah 10, and you guys are doing that. Not really. Jeremiah 10, verse 1. Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. Do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven. They worship the sun, moon, stars, the zodiac. For the Gentiles are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are futile. Now listen to this. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it can't topple. And reading that, after what I just told you about the fir tree, you think, well, that's what they're doing. This is where the Christmas tree comes from. The, that's The, the Christmas tree is pagan. It's part of the Babylonian worship system. No, what they would do is strip off all of the branches what Jeremiah 10 is talking about and form an image of the God they wanted to worship. They'd make a statue. They would deck it with silver and gold and they would ascribe life and power to that statue they made from the lump of the tree. It was part of their worship system. Now later on, as time goes on, remember I said you got... Uh, Babylonia, taken over by Medo-Persia, taken over by Greece, taken over by Rome. What happens years later is some of these same beliefs and traditions get passed down into these various cultures. So in Rome, in Rome, even 2,000 years ago, was celebrated two festivals around the same time. One was called Saturnalia. Saturnalia celebrated December 17th to the 24th was the Feast of the Unconquered Sun, followed by another feast on December 25th, and that was called Brumalia, Saturnalia, Brumalia. That was the festival of the Invincible Sun. Once again, the solstice had passed. Now the days begin to get longer, and part of Roman worship was also sun worship. Incidentally, Romans celebrated Brumalia and Saturnalia by having gifts... Uh, making gifts, giving gifts to each other, Uh, drunken parties where they would gather together and they would celebrate at that time of the year. Okay, now some of you get nervous about now. Another huge tradition is the big fat guy in the red suit who gives gifts to everybody, travels the world, and that is Santa Claus. And we look at, at, at what I just read or what I just talked to you about and Santa Claus, and we go, oh my, I mean, it's just, it is commercialized. And I will agree, it has become very commercialized and become a pressure point for a lot of people. Here's just a little fact. It is estimated, because it was true last year, and it's probably about the same this year, that Americans will purchase 28,500,000 sheets or rolls of wrapping paper. This season, 17 million little bags of bows and tags, they will cut down 35 million 200,000 trees and place those in their homes only to have them die and dragged out in a few weeks. It's enough to make anybody say bah humbug. So that's the past. That's the tradition. What's the solution to that? Let's now look to the present, the solution. It's true, I concede, I agree, that many of these traditions have pagan roots. Um, a lot of our society has them as well. For example, I remember when somebody walked up to me a while ago and said, Why do you worship on Sunday? You should worship on the Sabbath. Because Sunday is the day the ancients used to worship the sun. That was that person's rationale. Don't worship God on Sunday because that's the day the ancients worshipped the sun. I said, boy, you got a good point there. But you also have a problem. Because if you're telling me you have to worship on Saturday, your words, that's Saturn's day. That's when the ancients worshipped Saturn. And you can't worship on Monday because that's the day the moon, moon day, was by the ancients worshipped, And that means you really can't worship God all of January because January is named after the Roman god Janus, the god of the doors and gates, the opening and ending of each year. And you can't worship in March because that's the month that Mars is worshipped. And I kind of went on and on like this. They got the point. A lot of us don't even know the origins of the days of the week or months of the year that we say every day and celebrate by keeping a calendar. And likewise, most people, most people not knowing the origins of the Christmas tree or the Easter egg from Babylon, they don't cut out a tree and put it in their house and worship Nimrod or Tammuz. At least I've never met anyone that did. They're unaware of that. So what do we do? How do we respond? This is what I suggest. We do with Christmas, we do with December 25th, the day that isn't going away. It's going to be celebrated every year. And I say we get ahead of the parade and lead it, not behind it. I say that we do with December 25th exactly what Jesus Christ did with a festival celebrated in His time that also had no biblical origin and no biblical roots. It was called, and we talked about it Sunday, Hanukkah. Go with me once again to John chapter 10. That's where we looked at Sunday and we'll just look at a few verses. John chapter 10. If you weren't with us, this is where we were. And this is where we are. John chapter ten, verse twenty two. Now it or verse twenty two. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem. And it was the winter. Stop right there. The feast of dedication was called the festival of lights, also called Hanukkah. It was celebrated because of what happened not in the Old Testament. But something that happened after the close of the Old Testament during those 400 called silent years between Malachi and Matthew. Jews were celebrating it. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's also a part of the celebration by walking in the temple, acknowledging the feast. Jesus walked in the temple, verse 23, in Solomon's porch. And then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Festival of lights, not like Pentecost, not like tabernacles, not like Passover, not a biblical feast, nothing God ever commanded the Jews to do. You know why it was celebrated? Thumbnail sketch again, and then I'll I'll put it away. About 170, 65 BC was a very volatile time in Jewish history. There was a guy up north in Syria at that time a Seleucid king named Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus hated Jews. Antiochus loved himself and he loved Greek culture and tried to impose that upon the Jews. They resisted. So in 170 BC, he conquered Jerusalem. He uh, attacked the temple structure itself. He forbid the circumcision of children, the sacrifice of animals to Jehovah God. He took a pig sacrificed it on the altar of sacrifice, took the juices of the pig, the most unkosher animal in existence to a Jewish person, and smeared its juices all over the temple. He erected a statue to Zeus, commanded the Jews to worship Zeus, and he took over. That went on until about 165 B.C. A guy by the name of Mattathias, down in a little town four miles from Jerusalem called Modin, got sick and tired of it. He said, we have to rebel against this guy. He staged a rebellion that became successful in one of his four sons named Judas Maccabeus. Ever heard of the Maccabean, not the beard, the Maccabean revolt or the Maccabean era? This is a group of Hasmonean priests that rebelled against Antiochus, successfully pushed him back into Syria, reinstituted the temple sacrifices, And they lit the menorah, that seven-branch candlestick that stood in the holy place. According to, now, now listen to my words carefully, according to legend, there was only one flagon of oil that could keep the menorah lit in the holy place for one day. One flagon would last one day. It would take eight days to get more oil from the place they got it for the temple, a place called Tekoa. That's where it was harvested and brought to the temple. They didn't have eight days. They they took over the temple for the Jews once again. They lit the menorah. They had enough oil for one day, but according to legend, the oil miraculously lasted eight days. It just kept burning. It didn't run out. It just kept burning. Next day it was there. Next day it was there. Next day it was there. So to this day, there are eight days celebrated in the Festival of Lights or Hanukkah. Here's the question. Did it really happen? Did it really happen? Did that oil really miraculously last eight days? Answer, we don't really know. And that's the point that I'm making. Here's Jesus celebrating a non-biblical festival... Based upon Jewish legend, and he's in the temple at Hanukkah on the festival of lights. Now listen carefully. He's using the festival to point out that he is the light of the world. He's using the festival of lights to point out who he is to make his claims, to stake his claims. And he has a long conversation with him during this festival. In verse 30, sort of sums it up. They got the message, I and my father are One. Now, here's my point. We can do with Christmas exactly what Jesus did with Hanukkah. We can take Christmas, the celebration that has become hijacked by the commercial community, and we can use it to shine the light on Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of the world. I want you to think about this. This is the one time a year when the world sings in the malls the same songs we sing in church at Christmas. They know the words. I don't think they know really what they mean or think really about the depth of their meaning, but it's the one time they allow that door to be opened. So I say, don't say bah humbug, don't reject it, redeem it. Capitalize on it. This is the month where we turn up the juice on evangelism in our own personal lives. I'll give you an example of somebody I think who did this quite well at Christmas time. He's the father of the Reformation, Martin Luther. Martin Luther decided to take a custom known in Germany and bring it into the house. Here's what was going on. In Germany, they had a tree called the Paradise Tree. It was a tree, it was a forest tree, a pine tree like these, cut down and put in public places. Little apples and crackers were placed on them and it was to celebrate the feast of Adam and Eve. And then in homes, in the the homes of Germans, uh, they had these little Paradise Tree mock-ups of pieces of wood, triangles triangular piece of wood to represent the Trinity, little shelves on them, figurines and fruit placed upon them to celebrate Paradise Day, the Feast of Adam and Eve. Martin Luther decides to take a pine tree off the public place, move it into his house, place candles on the tree, lights on the tree, gather children around the tree and say, Kids, these candles on this pine tree, this evergreen, represents Jesus Christ as the light of the world. And he used it as a way to preach the gospel to children in their neighborhood. I say that we can do the same thing. Gather kids on the street, kids in your neighborhood, say, I'm going to come over to my house, have some free cookies, (laughs) free candy. Maybe even get them a little gift and explain to them a little bit about Christmas. Now, in defense of our church fathers, by the way, who decided to land on December 25th in whatever year it was finally placed on the calendar that we'll celebrate Christmas on December 25th, in their defense, they did not choose December 25th as a way to capitulate to the world. They chose to do it as a way to counteract the world, to come up with a rival celebration. They were celebrating Bacchanalia, Brumalia, Saturnalia. And so what one of the church fathers actually said in a statement, I found it in quotes, we refuse henceforth to celebrate Brumalia. We refuse henceforth to celebrate Saturnalia. We will from now on at this time celebrate the only Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was set up as a rival celebration. Now, just because we don't know When Jesus was born. And and this is part of the argument. Well, you don't know it's the 25th. Nobody really knows. So why celebrate December 25th? Well, I would say this. If you were to go overseas and adopt a foreign child and you went to the orphanage and you got the child and you're signing the papers and they say, here's the problem with your child. We don't exactly know when this child was born. This is a street child. We think it could be around this time of the year, but... We know its birthday was anywhere from January 1st to December 31st, but, but, but we don't know exactly what date. So, so you can adopt the child, but we don't know exactly when the birthday is. When you bring the child home, will you forever not celebrate a birthday for that child? Well, we don't know when your birthday is. We're not going to give you a present. I'm sorry. I don't think that's going to happen. It'd be a bad parent if it did. I think you're just going to buck up, pick a date, and celebrate a birthday. And that is the day that has been going on for a long time. I'm not going to revolt. Again, I want to redeem. Okay, Santa Claus. But but I can't get over Santa Claus. I hate seeing Santa Claus You say this this fat guy in a red suit. And it's just so ho-ho-horrendous to even (laughs) want to bring Santa into it. Let's just banish Santa Claus. Not so fast. Yes and no. Yes, there was no guy who went to the North Pole and got a bunch of overproductive elves to make toys to put on a sleigh. That didn't happen. But there was a literal Nicholas who was celebrated and our tradition of Santa Claus goes as far back as the 4th century. In a little town called Myra in the province of Lycia in the country of Anatolia, also known as Turkey today, was a pastor... A bishop named Nicholas who decided that he would take not a sleigh but his wagon and fill it up with fuel and food and give it to the poor. He made such an impact because of its acts of compassion that after he died, many people, many Christians decided on the feast day of his death they would celebrate by giving gifts and being compassionate toward one another. Where did the red suit come from? Well, it actually came from European tradition. As this tradition kept being followed, the Dutch came up with the name Sint Nicholas, and they contracted it to Sinterklaas, where we get Santa Claus. And the red suit and the white fur was reminiscent of the bishop's cape and mitre, which is very popular, especially in Roman circles, uh, in church circles at that time. That's where it came from. So don't just ixnay Santa altogether. Again, tell kids who the real Santa was, because here's the deal. People see Christmas as a myth, People see Santa as a myth, and every year in hearts around the world, people say things like, boy, it would be really great if any of this were true. It would just be wonderful if there were a happy, jolly, compassionate person who gave like that. And we want to tell them, there is. The one that Nicholas served and loved, the Lord Jesus Christ, is that loving, compassionate one. And we point people again toward Christ. So here's, here's how I want to close. I want to close by looking to the future. Let me challenge you to innovate a little bit. Come up with your own traditions. If you're starting a family especially, man, this, you, you could sort of write into your family vibe, your family grid, what you're going to be doing and how you're going to be celebrating Christmas and make it a real joyful Christ-centered time. Here's a few suggestions, and then please, sky's the limit. Make your own. Number one, why don't you make why don't you make ornaments for your tree that marks significant landmark events in your life? Maybe a picture of your wedding. You get married. You, you don't have any kids yet. You have a picture of your wedding in the church you're married in. Put that on the tree. A couple years later, you have a child. You make an ornament with a little baby's face. You place it on the tree. Time somebody comes to Christ during that year, take their picture, put it on the tree, marking special events on the tree that you can look at and thank God for. A dedication of a child. Here's the second thing you could do. Adopt someone to help them. Now, a lot of you do this already. Over 13,000 this year, that's how many, almost 14,000 shoeboxes we collected for Operation Christmas Child. You sacrificially adopted a child in another country, another place, decided to give a gift in the name of Jesus. We have seniors that need to be visited to be given gifts. We have children in detention centers. LifeQuest offers that opportunity. That's a great thing you could do during this time of the year. Number three, let me tell you about a tradition that was a part of our family and was I wish I could say it was my idea, but it was it's my wife's idea. It was a great idea. What we would do Christmas Eve is take a brown paper bag, and the gnarlier the bag, the better. The messed up the bag, the better. If it's dirty and gnarly, great, perfect. Take the bag and write your name on it, and write a prayer on it of something you're asking God to change in your character and behavior. Something you're and ask forgiveness for, and you want to see change. And you place that out on the mantle, on the in the garage. Doesn't matter where. On Christmas Eve. So we used to do this with Nathan. I'd have one, Lenny would have one, Nate would have one. Nate would go to bed all excited because in the morning, in the place of the paper bags were brand new shiny bags or stockings filled with all sorts of great toys and candy and stuff for all of us. It was a symbolic gesture of God takes the old and makes all things new and lavishes us with His goodness and His grace. Something that we practiced for many years. Here's another suggestion. You could decide one of these evenings, not on a church night, but one of the other evenings, to drive through a neighborhood in town, um, a not-so-nice neighborhood, maybe even a rough neighborhood. As you drive through the town, start praying for all the people that you see walking on the streets or praying for the houses that are on that street, that God would do a work and make that a practice for your family. Here's a fifth thing you could do. You could write a letter during this season. It's is a great time to write a letter of forgiveness or reconciliation. Maybe somebody's wronged you or you've wronged somebody. You could use this season to reach out because I'll tell you what happens. This is a season where people's hearts get tender. And before Christmas, you could write or reach out or call and try to build a bridge of forgiveness with other people. Sixth and finally, and I'm going to end, you can carol. You can get some of your friends together. Invite them over to your house. Get some song sheets. Walk to your neighbor's house. And Carol, people love to hear Carol. You can knock on the door and you could say, excuse me, we're just here in the neighborhood. Can we sing you songs about our Savior? And before they say anything, just launch into a tune, <laughs> just sing a couple songs, bring in some harmonies. And uh, I think your neighbors will appreciate it. Especially if you sing well. <laughs> Don't let anybody hijack Christmas. Take it back. Let's do these kind of things. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings, is the Lord of Lords, and will reign forever and ever. We are not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. And we pray that our proclamation would be loud in Jesus' name. Amen.